Welcome to How Not to DM. I'm your host, Derek. Thanks for joining me on my quest to interview the very best dungeon masters on this plane of existence. Quick announcement, I've decided to start letting indie TTRPG creators who are looking for cheap ways to advertise use my show to promote their work. If that interests you, email me at hownodtodm at gmail.com. That's each of those words spelled out, and I'll be in touch. If you're enjoying the show, share it with your friends and family and leave a review. I'll be shouting out anyone who leaves new reviews on upcoming episodes. Now let's get into the guest intro. This episode's guest is Michael, aka Declan Farrellborn from Farrellborn Trading Company. Michael has been homebrewing items for his account for almost two years now after getting back into TTRPGs a few years ago. Michael's Instagram page is full of awesome items, subclasses, ideas, and more, which make for amazing inspirations for your own games. Enjoy! Well, my name is Michael Cox, but um, a lot of people online might know me as Declan Farrellborn. I kind of took that as my pseudonym when I started my page because it was an old character of mine. Um, uh, Farrellborn Trading is my homebrew page. I post items, spells, sometimes random homebrew rules or monsters, just whatever, anything that kind of sparks my interest or I get inspired to create. I started playing D&D in sixth grade. I randomly moved from a small town in the Midwest, Texas, and just so happened to sit next to another new kid who had just moved into town. So we were both kind of ostracized in this little small town, both of us from outside of Texas. And uh, we ended up sitting together at the lunch table when it came around because, you know, how it is in a new school, you kind of get stuck by yourself and both started talking about our love for everything sci-fi and fantasy. I mean, back then I'm quite a bit older. So back then it was, you know, we were talking about Conan and Beastmaster and Thundar the Barbarian and Star Wars. And, and he had read a lot of um, Lord of the Rings and Piers Anthony and Ari Salvatore and things like that, but he had never actually played D&D, but he knew about it. And he ended up actually becoming my first DM as well. So we're for at least the first year, we're the only, probably the only people in my whole town or probably within a good hundred miles that even played D&D. <laughs> because it was such a small town, where did you get your hand on the books that you played with? My Once uh, I started, uh, actually we first started playing and my parents had recently divorced and my mom's an avid reader. And one of the things she loved to do is just go to, back then it was Borders Bookstores and Barnes and Noble. She used to like to go to the bookstore and I'd go with her and she would, you know, get her books and read. And then I would go exploring around. So once I got into D&D and I first started reading like Crystal Shard and R.A. Salvatore books. So I'd read those. And then once we got into D&D, every time I'd go and get a book. So I have 102E, regular AD&D. <laughs> oh, no way. That's awesome. Do you still have all those books? I do. Yeah. Old, old Shadowrun books, Rift books, Boot, Boot Hill, Twite 2000. I have a lot of the old old school games that no one plays anymore. So cool. I know a lot of the old school kind of games are making a comeback. So who knows? They may come in handy someday. Yeah. I, I mean, I always mine them. I, especially my old D&D books, I go through and I mine them for ideas. And there's, you know, there's, there's uh, you know, nuggets of gold in all those old books. So I bet there's all sorts of great stuff in there. So you mentioned you kind of got started playing with this friend when you moved to a new town. Do you remember the first time you DM'd then and what kind of adventure you ran? Yeah, we actually, like I said, for like the first, it was at least a year. 
him and I were the only ones in my whole town that before we finally got to pull, we pulled some other people into the game. And what we would do, because neither one of us wanted to be a full-time DM, is we'd swap back and forth. We each had a character, and when the other person was DMing, that person would click control two characters, and then we'd swap back and forth. So it was kind of, you know, unorthodox at first, but, you know, it worked for us and allowed us to keep playing and both kind of get our feet wet in it. And so we did those kind of games forever. But the first game I actually really remember DMing for a larger group uh, was D&D 2E. And I basically ripped off the whole movie of Escape from New York. Do you remember that one? It's old. Like I think it was John Carpenter and it had like Kurt Russell. But I basically had an airship crash in, onto a penal colony and they were in prison and they had to uh, go and rescue the president. Basically, almost verbatim, reskinned that whole movie and just kind of w- winged it. And, you know, we had a lot of fun and I made a lot of mistakes, but it was it was fun. So. <laughs> Honestly, it's such a good idea to just steal stuff from other places because who knows if your players have actually seen those movies or, you know, whatever else you're stealing from. So it can be a great source of inspiration or, you know, like you did, you could just totally rip off the whole thing and see if anyone notices. And this actually segues really nicely into my next question, which is what are some of the worst mistakes you've made as a DM? And then what lessons did you learn from those mistakes? Oh, man, I've. I've made about every mistake you can. The one mistake that I I made on early on was when I was preparing for an adventure. I mean, it could even just be a one shot and I would basically write a novel worth of notes for the game. I'd over prepare. If the game was on a Sunday, I would spend all week just rewriting, erasing, rewriting, erasing. And I over prepared so much that it would stress me out if the players went off my script. And it was more about me kind of almost force feeding them that story and railroading them than, than it was that natural uh, collaboration of building the story together. So now I, I still, you know, try to make pretty good notes and especially for any kind of monologues or big story points, but the rest of it, I'm just kind of loose and just wing it. And everybody, you know, know that everybody else is there on my side, you know, everybody's just trying to have fun. So they're not going to like beat me up if I backtrack a little bit, you know? So (laughs) yeah, this is a classic mistake. A lot of guests have come on the show and said the same exact thing. So you're definitely not alone in trying to write a whole story and hope that your players will follow it word for word. I've mentioned it before, but in my first game, I did the same exact thing, wrote a bunch of plot points. They took a left turn at the very beginning. And so I had to figure it out from there. But honestly, it's a great learning experience, you know? (laughs) Yeah, I've I've also been, uh, you know, it's, I think the more you do it, you get more patient as well. I, I've definitely been had a bad habit in the past of, you know, getting so excited of things that I wanted to introduce to players or parts of their backstory I wanted to introduce that I rush it. You know, instead of leaving Easter eggs and playing that long game, it's almost like it's like a kid in a candy store, like or a kid waiting for the open that Christmas present. I would just be like, ah, here you go. And I just war dump on them and just give them all the magic items up front, give them all their backstory up front and then have nothing less left to do. You know, so. Yeah, I bet as a person who sits there and thinks of cool magic items and stuff all day, it's probably pretty hard sometimes to hold those back and wait for the right moment to share them instead of just giving them to your players all at one time. I could definitely see that. That That's where the uh, evolving magic items came from, too. It's like, okay, we're going to start this item off and it's going to grow with you over time. That way I can give it to them up, up front and then they can have it all the whole campaign. <laughs> Yeah, those scaling magical items are really sweet. I think it's a a cool idea because, you know, if you've spent three, four, five levels trying to get your grandma's sword 
and then you've just got to give it up because something bigger and badder comes along, then it's kind of like, what was the point of that? You know, why did I work so hard to get this item if I'm not going to use it for very long? So yeah, I think that's a cool idea. All right, so what are some of your favorite monsters, NPCs, those kinds of encounters you've used to challenge your players? It could be for stuff you've made up. It could be, you know, stuff from the monster manual. Um, I mean, I homebrew at most of my monsters. I love throwing reactions onto the monsters and giving them extra things to do in between turns so they're not waiting for 10 rounds and get killed before they even get something to do. But uh, <laughs> non-homebrew monsters, I love uh, like a good eye tyrant. I love a good beholder with a couple handfuls of minions. They can kind of uh, limit the mobility of the players and make them have to be a little bit more strategic. And they're always concerned about that anti-magic cone, you know, in the eye rays. So it, it just makes for a more dynamic encounter. And I really like that. I like to set up my encounters where I put what I call like little encounter hooks or like adventure hooks within the encounter. So like, you know, kind of like offhand mention, oh, there's a rock precariously positioned on the battlefield or, you know, a chandelier hanging there. I, mean, I think the Eberron book mentioned it about kind of setting that up for players. So it kind of gives them something to interact with. So slippery floors, you know, environmental effects, that sort of thing. Just something that, you know, encourages them to be creative instead of just going up and saying, you know, I hit the monster and reward them if they are creative. Yeah, I'm a big proponent of stuff changing in the middle of the battle. You know, every couple of turns, some new things show up or some conditions change. Like you mentioned, that rock that could fall down or, you know, there's like a cart to flip over and hide behind, that kind of thing. It's it's fun to add stuff like that to your battlefield that players can interact with and get creative with, like you mentioned. So you mentioned kind of near the beginning that a lot of your campaign is improv. I mean, you said you plan, you know, specific plot points and dialogue and that kind of thing, but a lot of the rest of it is kind of improv. So what are some really fun moments from your games where, you know, you still laugh about it or it's still mentioned by your players where you had to just totally come up with something on the fly and, you know, it really worked out. Most recently, I guess one of the, I don't know if this is pure improv, but it was just um, not by me anyway, but by my players. One of the cool encounters we had, we set up, they were doing a hostage rescue in the Underdark from a Duragar like a uh, scouting party. But it was something they couldn't take on without stealth. You know, they had to sneak in. If they alerted, the, it was like a small army, basically, with ogres and other uh, creatures as part of the, that scouting party. And they were good all the way up until the end. Once they got the hostages, they were running back across a rope bridge over a chasm. And, you know, somebody you know, wanted to pull the, you know, the classic Indiana Jones, cut the rope. You know, half the army falls on one side, half the army falls on the other. But the thing that they did that was different that you couldn't do in Indiana Jones was they had an immovable rod. So they looped the ropes around their side, cut on the other side of the rod, you know, 50 feet of bridge. And, you know, a handful of creatures fell to one side and they were able to scamper across and then later retrieve their rod, you know, through some fly spell. But so yeah, things like that. I'm like, I really enjoy is seeing for me, it's just like throwing random stuff out into the encounter and then seeing what the players are going to do. And then for like, even for social encounters, just not being afraid to have a little bit of an awkward silence just to see what they're going to say. And then when the player says something, kind of try to remember that and then throw that back at them later. Like they offhandedly say, I've always wanted to captain a pirate ship somewhere down the road. They're going to end up on a pirate ship. So I want to, I like to try to like do it on the fly, basically. Oh, that was a cool story about getting across a bridge. That's a great idea using the immovable rod. And I was going to say, did they go back and get it? Because I know those things are super important or super useful. You know, no party is, uh, is going to 
part with one of those willingly. <laughs> yeah. And that's a good point about listening to what your players say while they're playing too. You know, if their character has a specific aspiration, then, you know, you try to meet that like the pirate ship or whatever it might be, you know, give them an opportunity to live out that specific uh, thing that they're interested in. So love that. As far as the people who have influenced you the most as a DM or the things that have influenced your style the most, you know, are there specific people or specific things that you find give you the most inspiration or, you know, have, have affected the way you see the game and play the game? Uh, I mean, obviously the, you know, the big DMs, the big streaming DMs are an influence, but you know, like impossible to live up to, but just seeing how, like, for example, how Mercer handles certain, certain circumstances and handles his, his players and allows them the freedom to kind of come up with whatever they're going to come up with. You know, I always have taken that to heart even before that, but probably my biggest influence is movies and TV. I like my campaigns and even one shots, anything to be real cinematic and give my players an opportunity to realize their, the persona they made for the character. If they, if they're a hero or a jester or, you know, a villain, I want them to kind of have those opportunities in order to realize those personas. And I kind of try to work the campaign in that direction. I mean, still keep it challenging because sometimes the best story is a character dying. You know, I mean, some of the best movies, the main the main hero dies and, and that makes for a way better story. But I want to give the opportunity for the characters to build that story and make them feel, you know, awesome and make them feel like they're getting to do something they can't do in their normal life. Right. So, so, and and I've, and I rip off every movie I've ever seen. I mean, there's, you know, and, and sometimes the players will know it and they think it's funny because then it's like, they're in on it. You know, they, they realize the Easter egg that they're now in the plot of predator or they're, you know, in some other eighties movie, (laughs) you know, so movies and TV by far, you know, I, I think I feel like as a DM, you're kind of a director, you know, helping to collaboratively build the story you know, as opposed to being like this taskmaster that's trying to kill your players. Yeah, who knew all of those weird sci-fi and fantasy movies that we watch would be such great influence on the games we play, you know, especially the movies that my wife or whoever won't watch with me. (laughs) Those end up being fabulous inspiration on what I'm going to do with my party next. Yeah, that's even better, right? If they don't, if they don't realize that it was actual movie and then you can next thing they know they're in the plot of terminator or something you know so <laughs> yeah exactly and then you look like the genius for thinking up such a cool complex interesting plot right <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah so let's transition now to Furrowborn trading company so tell us what it's about where the idea came from you know how it got started and the history so far okay so the name Furrowborn trading company actually came up in campaign the birth of my son came which monopolizes your time. I mean, I already have a limited time between work and other, you know, real life responsibilities. So I let my brother take the reins of DMing for a campaign and got to be a player, um, which is so nice. So, you know, sometimes you can just show up like five minutes before the game and you're good to go. (laughs) Yeah, it's nice. You know, so, um, and that character actually that I made was based off of, um, uh, loosely based off, well, not loosely, pretty much completely based off of Jason Momoa's character in, frontier it was a show on netflix he's basically he was basically like a hunter trapper in like the french canadian uh, french canada back in the early fur trade days so i made a character in our homebrew uh, world uh, we have a, a place called the riverlands which is basically kind of 
that kind of feel. So I made a ranger rogue named Declan Farrowborn. Um, he lived, you know, ran a canoe. His backstory was kind of like ran a canoe up and down this river hunting and trading. And eventually, you know, with the other party members, you know, they went on epic adventures and everything. And it went ended up being a, to a completely a level 20 campaign. But throughout that process, I actually built the trading company in game. And then that became part of our homebrew world, you know, as canon. And so in uh, January of that following year, I kind of made a New Year's resolution to myself that I was going to actually start sharing some of the stuff I've created. Um, all my friends that played with me were like, you need to share some of this. You know, it's, you know, like, let's let some other people see it. You know, they probably would like it. You know, why don't you make an Instagram page or something like that? So I did. And I just kind of, I don't know, set a goal to make one item a week for the year. Every week of the year, I'll make one item a week. And then I'll, I'll share them on Instagram just to see if, you know, a couple of people like them. And then at some point I'll post something on DMs Guild just so I can say like, oh, now I'm a professional D&D creator. <laughs> if you make like one cent off it, you can call yourself a professional, right? And then COVID hit and I had a lot more time on my hands. I was working from home, not going out in the field. And I got fortunate to meet through Instagram, a lot of the other bigger or well-established item creators. And 201, every single one of them was extremely kind, super encouraging and supportive, you know, kind of gave me some a few hints here and there on how to get a few more followers. And then things kind of, you know, started blowing up out of nowhere. And I just said, okay, I'm gonna make a hundred items this year and see what happens. <laughs> you know, so. so that leads me to my next question, which is number one, what is the process from start to finish? So how do you come up with the ideas for the items? And then do you design them all yourself? Do you do all of the art yourself? And then as far as playtesting and that kind of thing goes, do you playtest all of these yourself as well? You know, talk to us through that process. Yeah, I do all the mechanics and all the art and everything from scratch, unless I'm collaborating with someone or, you know, somebody hits me up that just has like a cool idea. And, you know, then I'll use their ideas and inspiration to build out something. But it's almost always just uh, either in game um, when I'm DMing, I see uh, something that I think would fit a character's persona, or I think would just be something, oh, that would have been cool if they had something in that situation to use this kind of item for. Or I'll look at it like a, the party dynamics and I'll say like, okay, this party ha doesn't have, you know, say a healer. It would be really cool then if they had an item that replaces the need to have a cleric. Um, so a lot of my items kind of initially kind of just grew from that. And that's kind of where my backlog of items came from. Um, or, you know, randomly, you know, sometimes somebody will hit me up on Instagram and just say like, hey, I got a, this cool idea for an item. And I'm like, oh yeah, cool. I'll, I'd love to make that. I'll give you credit for it. And they let me flesh out the mechanics and I'll draw you, draw up a picture. And, you know, the only uh, transaction we make between each other is you you provide an inspiration and I'll provide you an item kind of. So that's pretty much the birth of them. But then the mechanics and stuff just come from me wanting to make things that I think are fun, you know, and interesting. I don't consider myself that great of an artist. I feel like my knowledge of D&D &D and the mechanics is better than my art. So a lot of times I make up the item before I try to draw it. I could have a really cool item, but if I just put plus one sword that does fire damage, that's boring to me. So instead, I try to think of something, you know, completely different or out there or some kind of new twist on a mechanic and then just try to find something that like at least conveys that idea <laughs> in picture. So you get inspiration from your games and from those old TTRPG books that you've collected. And you also occasionally will get suggestions from people online so what does your backlog look like then uh unfortunately i have too many items i've and i've i've uh shot myself in the foot a few times by just opening up the floodgates being like to my followers be like oh 
anybody that sends me an item, send it to me and I'll make it kind of thing. And then realize, oh no, <laughs> you know, now I'm over promising and under delivering. So I have so many item ideas, subclass ideas, homebrew mechanics, like campaign world building type settings. And I just literally can't get to it all. I mean, now even my pace of releasing items has had to slow down a little bit because I was getting caught up there for a little while of just being like, oh, you got to post two or three times a day. You got to do certain things. Are you going to let down your followers? Are you going to let down any patrons or that sort of thing? And I was, it's kind of starting to suck the fun out of it. So I've kind of just been like, nope, I'm just going to, I'm only going to make something when I feel like super inspired, a spark hits me, or I just feel it feels right in the moment. And then I'll sometimes crank out two or three items in a night. I, I've, I'm okay now with going two weeks without posting. Hey, that's really good that you're able to identify though, that you were kind of getting close to burnout and you were you know, okay with scaling back your schedule of content and that kind of thing. Because I know there are some people who just go, go, go too hard, too fast, too much. And then they get sick of it and, you know, totally stop. And it's kind of sad because a lot of us like to see their work and that kind of thing. But yeah, it's, you know, I think it's really healthy that you were able to kind of establish those boundaries and recognize that early on. Well, and I think sometimes uh, you see people that started off because they love playing D&D and love DMing and the world building and the item stuff was actually still playing D&D in between games. But then they get so caught up in actually making the items, they actually, they stop playing. And for me, I'm like, I, I never wanted making stuff for D&D to get in the way of me actually playing. So sometimes now I'm like, well, yeah, I haven't posted in two weeks, but I played in three games last week. You know, or I played in another online, you know, game with some friends that I met through Instagram or something like that. And I was like, that's more than I could have ever asked for out of this. I'm like, I don't, you know, want to put the cart before the horse, you know, sometimes and, and take all the fun out of it. Yeah, for me, this podcast is a lot of fun, but it's also just a hobby, right? And it's important for me to remember to be respectful of my own time. But, you know, the, the more people I meet and the more cool stuff I get to do with other people, interactions and collaborations and that kind of thing, the more worthwhile it is for me. So I'm in total agreement with you there. All right, so tell us about your favorite item or subclass or, or whatever that you have created as part of Feralborn Trading Company. One that wasn't uh, pretty early that I made that actually I still think is um, really fun for the right character is I made, a, it was kind of like a, a hog splitter, a cleaver, like two-handed big huge cleaver that I called the spell cleaver and you could cleave spells. But the main mechanic of it that I really liked was you could you could see the faint uh, image of any rift scars, and I call rift scars anytime somebody you know teleported, misty stepped, or anything else, they'd leave a little bit, you know, kind of like that movie Jumper. They'd leave like a little bit of veil behind, and this axe you could cut that open, and it'd leave the portal open until the end of your next turn. So it's perfect for the barbarian, you know, that always is getting banished, or you know, is having wizards, you know, misty step away, they use the axe and, you know, they carve open the portal and they're, they're on the run and they're still chasing that guy from, you know, until they run out of charges on the axe, they could just keep chasing them, you know, along the way. So. Oh, wow. That's a really cool idea. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I, I may have to steal that one. My brother plays a barbarian in my game and he would love something like that. <laughs> no, it's all free to take. I mean, nothing makes me happier than somebody using something in game. So. Other than that, I mean, there's a couple of mechanics that I thought were really novel and actually a couple other uh, or another creator kind of came up with it um, kind of at the same time, you know, kind of like the pyramids in Egypt and the pyramids in Mesoamerica growing at the same time. But I started doing uh, scaling 
items based off your proficiency bonus. So like instead of just having a plus one sword, you have your sword is, you know, half your proficiency bonus rounded down minimum one so that, you know, when your proficiency bonus is finally at level 20, like plus six, it's still only a plus three weapon. But now it's a legendary weapon that has all that nostalgia and has grown with you. And then you can base the charges off that, too. If you say like, oh, it has your proficiency bonus times two charges. And then sometimes some of those abilities on that weapon are only, you know, take so many charges, you wouldn't be able to use it until the mid tier and later tier of the game. I like having that just because personally, I've as a player, I've turned down items that are more powerful just purely because it didn't fit my character or I just had so much nostalgia for an old axe. So I'll keep my plus one axe because it has the story. Yeah, I love the idea of the scaling weapons. I guess I first noticed it in Critical Role, right, with the vestiges, but it is a really cool idea, and for the exact reasons you said, right? All of the weapons that people use, sometimes they might be heirlooms of their family or part of their backstory or whatever, so it's nice to have them improve and level with the character and be part of the story as much as anything else in their backstory. So, yeah, I love that idea. And I like that you have thought of a couple of cool ways to scale it, like the proficiency bonus, that's really slick. And then the fact that it adds new abilities, uh, the more charges it gets. And so stuff that you couldn't do before that would have been too powerful, now you have access to as you've leveled up. Honestly, really elegant, really sweet system. So bravo. So we've talked about some of the items that you like to make and kind of your process. Where can people find your work? And then how can they support your work if they're interested? Hey, yeah, I mean, I'm predominantly on Instagram. I don't know necessarily why that just ended to be in the platform I took first, other than you can post pictures on there. Um, so I started there and that's where I have the majority of my followers. I do have a Facebook and a Twitter and a Pinterest and an Imgur, all those, but I'm just, I'm pretty terrible about keeping up with things. I think I have like, you know, 20 followers on Twitter and the only thing I ever post on there is because I, you know, cross post when you post on Instagram. So by far my business biggest presence is on Instagram and the rest of them, I, I do what I can to try to keep up with. And then kind of the same thing goes for my Patreon. I fought it for a long time, even creating one until I was kind of like pushed and pushed and pushed until they twisted my arm from other creators. They were like, you need to do this. You know, I know you feel bad about, you know, taking money for the stuff you're making, but if you get paid to do things you love, it makes it easier to justify that time and makes you invest more time into it. Because I was kind of always, I didn't want to have a paywall in between my items and people that could use my items. Because for me, I started sharing them because I wanted to contribute to the game. And I wanted to feel like I was getting to play with people that I would never get actually ever get to meet. So it's like if I was creating memories for them and contributing to their game and they had a memory that used my item. I mean, to me, that's kind of like a weird form of like immortality for your items. It's like kind of, you know, like somebody that's writing a, a book or making a movie, you know, you're changing somebody's life in a super small way, but still contributing to that memory. And that's why I'll still, everything I make, I'll still offer it for free, even though I have a Patreon. And sometimes maybe I'll throw some other bonuses on there, but I'm never going to not offer stuff for free and put it for free. I have all my items for free on D&D Beyond for anybody that uses that platform. I go on there and upload them and put in all the mechanics and fill out all the you know, little forms so you can use it on the, on their digital character sheets as well. So people can find me there too, that maybe you've never even seen me on, on Instagram. I so you mentioned that you thought about publishing some of them on DMs Guild. Did you ever do that? And do you continue to do that? Um, I did. I When I made my first 20 items, I posted like a little compendium of 20 items on there. 
And then I did it again when I hit 40. I've you know, here's the second 20 of the 100 that I'm trying to make this year. Um, and then I got away from it. Mainly some of the other creators were like, oh, you know, if you post it on there, you can't post it anywhere. You can't use it for anything else. If anybody else wants to use it, one of your items in one of their adventures, they can't unless they're on DMs Guild. So now I pretty much have stopped, even though I, I like that platform and I, I buy a ton of stuff from there myself, from other creators. The only time I'd probably post on there now is if it was something I was using SRD con or non-SRD content where you have to be part of that platform and say, you know, if you want to use something or, you know, revamping a Tasha's subclass or something like that, you can't do on your own because of copyright. Yeah, I've had a couple guests talk about the same thing where DMs Guild is great for using official content and kind of making it your own. So that sounds like a good option for, like you said, when you're kind of making adjustments to an existing thing. So it sounds like Instagram is probably the best place to find the stuff that you're making right now. That's great. So what are your short-term and long-term goals for Feralborn Trading Company? You mentioned you had that 100 item in a year kind of goal for yourself at the beginning of 2020. You know, where do you see this thing going? Short-term, I'm still posting items, not as regularly um, right now as, you know, the, the busy time for my, for my job that pays the bills. So I have to naturally step back. I just don't physically have enough time to game, let alone make items. But my short-term goals is just to keep posting items, keep engaging. Even if I'm not actually creating, I want to keep engaging with people online and theory crafting, supporting other creators, you know, supporting their Kickstarters or whatever else they got going on. I recently got to help out as kind of like a creative consultant and editor for Carl at Nat Ones. I'm not sure if you're familiar with, with them. They uh, released a Kickstarter of a magical tattoos and a, a tattooist class. He asked me if I'd like to help him work out some of his mechanics and go through his class and just try to break it basically like as a player, like how would I use this to find every loophole I could in order to break the game? And I had a great time with it. So I'm like anybody that's needing somebody to over, you know, look over magic items or look over any kind of homebrew stuff. I'd love to you know work on that in the short term and then eventually, you know, get to that backlog of stuff I have. I have a really cool project that may never come to fruition that my brother and I were working on that um, basically tackles, you know, as you get older and you get more responsibilities, it's harder to schedule games and that kills games more than any TPK is scheduling. And so we got kind of a homebrew setting that revolves around kind of like a home base and still allows for overarching storylines, but in in an episodic way so that you can still do kind of one shots. There's mechanics built in for rotating DMs, for players having a stable of characters instead of just one characters. You know, and it's built so that people can, you know, easily jump in and out of game, but you can still progress the storyline. So it's more like, I guess the best example is like, you know, like you take like a show like Supernatural, uh, where it's episodic, but they still have an overarching story. But each story could kind of stand alone on its own. You know, it starts and ends for the most part. Sometimes, you know, it's, there's a, the to be continued. But for the most part, the story can stand alone, but then it still is building on a bigger story. And so it's like and then this is all set up in like a smaller campaign setting. But I mean, it's so much work. I'm just like, oh, I don't know when that's ever going to happen. But it's fun tinkering with it on the side. (laughs) Oh, man, that sounds like something I'd be really interested in because, you know, I started playing with my coworkers initially when I got into TTRPGs. And it's that same problem. Lives, kids, jobs, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we sometimes talk about getting the group together again, but, you know, who will be able to play that week or that month or whatever. So this sounds like kind of a good way to solve it. I know there's 
game styles out there, like West Marcha style games, where it's meant to be large groups of people all doing different things. But I think this is kind of a slightly different problem that you're looking to solve. And I would bet that there's a market out there for people who are looking for kind of a more casual way to jump in and jump out of gaming like this, but still want to be part of maybe a larger story arc. So that's really cool. Yeah, I think there's just there's a really good, um, I, I wouldn't say market for it, but a really good niche for like expanding on the downtime activities and having things that characters can do amongst themselves that doesn't necessarily require the DM between games. Um, and things like that. I think there's there's still something there that I mean, there's been other things that have touched on it, but I think there's there's more there that can make the game pretty fun. And and if you show up and there's only two people show up because of scheduling, you can still have a fun game. Well, that's awesome. And if you ever need playtesters, you know, hit me up. I'm sure my coworkers would be down to try it out and see what we like, what we dislike, and kind of work on it with you, man. That's cool. All right, so here's another good question. If people want to use anything that you've created, be it the items or the subclasses or anything like that, in something that they are publishing, like a stream or a podcast or something like that, you know, what what do they have to do? Do they have to get some permission? Do they need to make sure that they give you credit? You know, anything like that? I've tried to communicate it as much as possible, but everything I make free, have at it. Uh, the whole reason I started sharing was to contribute to other people's stories in whatever way I can. If something ends up on somebody's stream and I don't hear about it, that's fine. If you tell me about it, I'll promote the stream. I met Kevin the hand that runs Dice Cream through that. He was like, oh, I really like this item. Do you care if I use it? And I'm like, go for it. You know, it's like, I'll prom- when are you going to use it? And I'll tell people on my stories that that's going to be in your game. You know, and that's that's fun for me to hear your characters use it. And I'll cringe if they find something broken about it that I didn't remember, you know, or, or catch. You know, but it's it's fun. It's fun for me. I mean, that's D&D got me through a long uh, a portion of my life after my parents got divorced, like when I first latched onto it, where it basically like made me more creative, got me reading and gave me a lot of a lot of gifts that that I I just kind of want to give back now to people as far as like I want to contribute to their games. If it makes memories for them, makes their character feel cool, gives them a cool moment, then I couldn't be happier. That's awesome. So yeah, if anyone out there listening is looking to get some inspiration or want to find some really cool stuff to use in your show or whatever, sounds like you've got a treasure trove to go check out. All right, we're kind of winding down to the end here now, but before we let you go, I'd love for you to give me your best advice for people who are out there running the game and then also for people who are homebrewing or who are thinking about getting into homebrewing and just aren't sure where to start yet. Um, As far as the DMing and the game in general, I, I've said it, I think a million times already is just have fun. Play the game you want to play with the people that have your same idea of fun and don't let anybody else tell you how to do it. You know, I've been playing for a long time since 2E and you, I see all the arguments online from the old school people and the new school people and, you know, everybody gatekeeping and this and that. And it's like you're not playing with the whole world. You're playing with your five friends usually. Only worry about those people. If everybody's happy and having fun, then don't worry about what other people are doing outside of that you know, but you can still be open to it too. I mean, I've played with all kinds of people and all kinds of games and had, you know, sometimes the best of times where I never thought I would have, you know, so it's like be open, but don't be beholden to anybody else's you know idea of how you should run your games. You know, like as long as everybody's happy at your table, then you know, that's all you have to worry about. But as far as getting into homebrew, just do it. Just share your items. It, it's fun to share it. Don't be, don't worry about followers and things like that. There's you know, there's people out there that are 20 times more talented than I am, but 
for some reason, maybe only have a fraction of followers. And then there's other people that have a fraction of the followers that are making a ton of money off of it. You know, So get into it because you want to have fun sharing items and you have a genuine love for the game, not because you're trying to get followers or make money off of it. I think that gets you frustrated really fast. And I think people realize that too. I was like, if you're genuine, I think the people, all the creators I've met, you know, whether it be map makers, item creators, other DMs have all been, you know, super friendly, super encouraging. I mean, you see somebody about to have a Kickstarter, you throw it on your page and you're like, wow, they just made a million dollars off their Kickstarter. That, that's incredible. You know, you don't get jealous or competitive. You're just like, no, that's good for the game. You know, the, the more the merrier, like, let's get everybody playing. You know, it's like there's going to be some kind of crazy content somebody never thought of that you're going to enjoy because somebody you didn't expect to play plays. Awesome. That's amazing advice. And I couldn't have said it better myself. All right. So what's your Instagram handle for people who want to go out and check out your cool work? Instagram is just Feralborn Trading. I think it's Instagram.com at Feralborn Trading. Uh, There's a link in the bio that goes to everything else. Like I said, you might see me commenting on Twitter, but that's basically I'm basically lurking on there (laughs) and commenting on other, other people's cool material, but not really posting anything on there. So, I mean, if anybody wants to find me, really Instagram is the place to find it or D&D Beyond. And then I've been playing a lot of games with the people over at the Initiative Order. You know, jump on there. They basically run games, online games for anybody that wants to play. And it's basically sign up. You know, maybe we'll end up playing a game together. Awesome. Yeah, that would be really cool. I'll have to go check that out. Well, thanks so much for joining me. It's been a ton of fun. I've loved to hear about your process and, you know, about the impact that the community has had on your creations and that kind of thing. It always warms my heart to hear how supportive everybody is, you know? So yeah, it's been a ton of fun and uh, we'll definitely have to do it again sometime. Thank you. I I really appreciate the opportunity. I get a little self-conscious when I'm on the mic or on the camera. So I appreciate you bearing with me and, you know, it was nice to meet you and thanks for giving me the platform to share this. Oh yeah, that's right. You mentioned this is your first podcast, huh? Yeah. Most of them I've uh, kind of like said, half-heartedly I do and then didn't follow through so (laughs) this is another one of those things on my goal list of like I gotta finally do one you know I gotta play in a stream live and I gotta actually finally do a podcast so thank you for letting me check that off thanks for listening to how not to dm my intro and outro music is by my good friend Torin, aka Mr. Tate check out his music on Apple Music or Spotify And until next time, roll some Nat 20s for me.